Welcome to the Core Principles Podcast. Thank you for tuning in, and we hope you'll enjoy this lively discussion of relevant topics, which we attempt to examine through the lens of unchanging objective truth. Here's the host of the Core Principles Podcast, Clay Howerton. Thank you, Suzanne. It's my honor to welcome to Core Principles a man who is partly responsible, although he's hearing this for the first time, for my beginning this podcast last year. When I considered starting a sort of an interview program, this man, today's guest, was one of the first who came to mind as someone I'd like to interview. He's an educator, an historian, an author, and a truly influential thinker. Uh, His work with the Heritage Foundation, Intercollegiate Studies Institute, and the Army War College can attest to that. He studied at Arkansas State University as an undergraduate and earned advanced and terminal degrees at Claremont Graduate School. He studied at the Worcester College of Oxford University and served there as the director of research for the official biographer of Winston Churchill, Sir Martin Gilbert. His current primary responsibility is a very significant one. He is the 12th president of Hillsdale College. I'm so thankful to welcome you to the program, Dr. Larry Arne. How are you? I'm very well. I'm very glad to be with you, too. Well, thank you so much. Well, we're going to talk today about some history of this great nation, the United States of America. You and some colleagues have helped summarize in expert fashion uh, some of this history as part of a commission that was initiated last Constitution Day 2020 by President Trump. But first, I want to ask you to share with our listeners a little history about Hillsdale College. It's a really extraordinary, I think, special institution, and I think its legacy is worth a bit of reflection. Uh, What would you have us know about that, Dr. Arne? Uh, Well, Hillsdale College is uh, founded by people who served in the cause of Abraham Lincoln, both in politics and war. It started in 1844 on the frontier. It started with a commitment to accept all who wish without regard to race, sex, or national origin. It's founded for four purposes, freedom, faith, learning, and character. It did a great service of two kinds in the Civil War. It uh, had more young men fight for the Union Army than any non-military college except Yale. Four of them won the Congressional Medal of Honor. And then also it helped to figure out, this is our old affection for the Constitution of the United States, it helped us. It helped to figure out a way under the Constitution to eliminate slavery. And that way is most of the land area of the United States is not yet organized as states. And the Congress had the power to regulate that part, not organize the states. And so it could forbid slavery from going there. And that was actually pretty easy to do because slavery needs a lot of protection. For all the claimed happiness of the slaves in the Confederacy, they did keep trying to get away. So that brilliant thing, which was the center of the platform of Abraham Lincoln in 1860, was first thought up on Hillsdale College campus by a few men who later became the governor and lieutenant governor of Michigan in the Civil War. So it's an old history. Uh, Today, it's different because It remembers that history, and it thinks that the principles of the college are authoritative. We don't get to change them. If we wanted to start a college with different principles, we could do that. But this one, we would have to call it something else if we changed its being. And most of our colleagues in the college business don't think that way anymore. And so uh, it doesn't take any money from the government. It regards that and from the federal government is unconstitutional. And anyway... We don't want them messing with us. And they do mess with us all the time. 
but not as much as if we got what most of our competitors get 50 to 80 percent of their revenues from the government if the government sneezes they get the flu <laughs> and uh and so we've we got a kind of rugged attitude about it uh, today the college is like it was it's a big core curriculum difficult college full of people who love what they're doing all the students signed an honor code to get in it's early in the term while we're doing this and it's the happiest time of year we're all rested and we have the freshmen to make fun of <laughs> and uh, i'm giving them a talk today at noon about what the college means and how their part in it can be best be discharged so that's hillstock college it's a old-fashioned excellent thing well thank you so much and as so often is the case, Dr. Arn, when, when you say something and I hear you say it, it generates more questions than we're even going to have time, even if we didn't talk about the topic of the day. But you mentioned those principles that don't change. And of course, that's the purpose of this podcast that I started and why I called it Core Principles. So that's why you were the ideal guest I had in mind. Listeners, Dr. Arn mentioned that they don't take money from the government and that's great. So they don't have to have a huge compliance department that says thou shalt not because Washington, D.C. says so. But that also means they rely on support of interested Americans who want this kind of education to be available. If you do have an interest in that, and I hope you do, I encourage you to visit hillsdale.edu and learn how you can support that mission. Now, Dr. Larry Arn, uh, I mentioned that on Constitution Day 2020, President Trump announced a commission that produced some expert scholarship regarding America's history. How did your involvement in that begin? Lord knows. Of course, I've been working on the subject like that for my whole adult life. So President Trump got this idea. I was asked to be the chairman of a panel on Constitution Day in the National Archives, where we had a panel discussion, and then President Trump came and gave a speech, a very fine speech, if I do say so myself. One of my students helped to write it. So they asked me on that day, would I be on the commission? And later, would I chair the commission? And I said, sure. Uh, and I make the point, by the way, that uh, in the extremely unlikely event that Joe Biden calls me this morning and asks me to do the same thing, I will agree to do it. Uh, it ought not to be a partisan thing to recover and teach a historical event because we, we actually are arguing today all the time that history is changeable. You know, that is the core idea that justifies the tyranny in the novel 1984. Mm. Uh, whatever the party says a thing is, it is. If two plus two equals four, they say, if we say it, you have to believe it. If it equals five, you have to believe it. And you may even have to believe both those things at the same time. And that repeals the law of contradiction, which is the base of all human uh, history. And it justifies, you know, if you read the Declaration of Independence, where do our rights come from? They come from someplace eternal. The laws of nature and of nature's God. That doesn't mean Christianity, although uh, Cicero and Thomas Aquinas, Cicero a pagan and Thomas Aquinas a Christian saint, they both define that as the rational creature's participation in God's governance of the universe. So we, we, we think in America, we were born thinking in America, and the first one ever born on this proposition that every human being is entitled to be treated as a human being. And that's different than how you treat a horse or a dog. We have a new puppy in our house right now, and we're going to raise the puppy. Right now, he's still 
making messes on the floor, but he's going to grow to be what he's supposed to be. And it doesn't matter how we raise him. We can't make him anything else. We could only stunt him or distort him. We have a new granddaughter, about the same age as the puppy. And uh, she's, of course, the most important thing in the universe these days. And she is going to grow to be a woman. And if we raise her right, she will have every opportunity to grow to be a fine woman. But if we try to make her into anything else, we'll ruin her. She has to be treated as a human and the dog as a dog. So that's what that principle means. And the idea that it was a wicked principle is crazy. If you just look at what it says, what it says is beautiful. And so the first thing to understand, if you want to give yourself to the knowledge of another thing, is you have to see that thing as it is. The American Revolution is a human thing, and it's got lots of problems and crimes and sins and awfulnesses. And also, it's one of the finest and most glorious things of its kind in history. So if you look at it as it is, you'll find that out. Yes, sir. Well, you did mention President Biden. I think that might be the first time I've ever called him that. We did get a new president, Inauguration Day 2021. And on that very day, Joe Biden terminated the commission. We don't have time, maybe, and it's not really relevant. But that disturbs me a little bit to think either he thought that it was done and therefore should be terminated in which case why is it so urgent to do it on inauguration day or he thought i don't want any part of this and we got to get rid of it either way i don't understand that but i do want to quote in line with something that you just brought up from the preface to the 1776 report uh, that came out of that commission this is i know that there were three authors of the preface but this is so much dr larry arn speak i have to believe you wrote this uh, quote we differ greatly about the central meaning of our nation. And because the principles of the nation make claims about the nature of human beings, as you were just describing, Dr. Arn, and about human liberty, we are arguing today about the basis of everything human, unquote. So, Dr. Larry Arn, that's a doctoral thesis and a paragraph. Can you unpack a little bit about, you know, how significant this is? Classical philosophy gives us the tools to understand what that means. Things have various kinds of causes. They're caused by what they're made of. America is made by the land and its people. They have efficient causes. That's the people who do the work of making it and sustaining it, which means everybody, uh, the making it, especially the founders. It has a formal cause. Our union, our nation, is organized under a constitution that provides the form under which we act together, and it has a final cause. And you can understand the final causes. What a thing seeks or loves that gives it its purpose for its being. Everything has such a cause. Even inanimate animate things, according to Aristotle, have such a cause. Well, every partnership, uh, Aristotle writes, in a city or the country is a kind of partnership, aims for some good. The good for which our country aims is stated in the Declaration of Independence. And it's unique at the time, it's been followed by some other places, but to form a nation where there was none before, according to those principles, is a very dramatic thing and a very beautiful thing. And if we miss that, and we are attempting to efface the knowledge of that, then we're going to be living in 1984. 
and that's what's at stake. It's everything is at stake. And uh, that's so why we have to pay attention these days. Why your podcast is a good idea. Well, thank you for that. And by the way, listeners, if you have never read George Orwell's 1984, please uh, read it, listen to the audiobook, however you can take it in. The principles that he shows and speaks about, uh, he does it in a way I wouldn't call entertaining because it's terrifying, but it will resonate and you will see things that he predicted as a horror that might befall us, some of it happening. And you'll try to stop it, which would be a good thing. Well, Dr. Arn, you made a startling statement in one of the appendices, startling to me, of the 1776 report. Uh, I recognize the truth of the statement that it's in there, but I'm still really interested to hear you explain this to our listeners. And it has to do with a specific kind of topic that is relevant today. People have heard of this identity politics. It says, quote, identity politics is fundamentally incompatible with the principle of equality enshrined in the Declaration of Independence. Now, I know that everyone is interested in and loves equality. So this would sound like a big red flag. We should pay attention about this identity politics. What do we need to know about that? You need to know what it means and you need to know the idea behind it. Uh, and then you'll see why what, I, what we claim in that thing is true. What identity means is, is that People have individual identities defined by their various causes, very various aspects of them. And the aspects change over time, but they're all what we call in logic accidental to human nature. That is to say, the, the miracle of a human baby learning to talk, which they all do themselves. You can't teach them. Uh, they, they just start doing it. Our little granddaughter, nine months old, she's already working on it, right? And the puppy is not and never will. And that means Charlotte is a different kind of thing from the puppy Woodrow. And you can't change that, right? Well, that means it doesn't really make any difference what color Charlotte is or what color Woodrow is for that matter. That That's ancillary, that's accidental. So if you take color and you make it defining, then you have lost the meaning of the human. And also the natural result of that is you'll pick, pit the races against each other. And they have been against each other much in American history, but the only way out of that, according to the greatest Americans, is this principle that we're all the same in essence. So you give up on that, right? And, you, and, and then the second thing follows. Our identity is shaped by these accidental circumstances, by what we do for a living, that's Karl Marx, by our color, that's critical race theory, by a million, by, by our race, that's Nazism. And there, there's a kind of a supposed liberating thing about that realization. If it's true that we are shaped decisively by these accidental factors, then we could get control of those factors. Mm -hmm and we could reshape ourselves. Mm. We could become our own creators. In that novel, 1984, which I took a fancy to 30 years ago and teach here sometimes with some other totalitarian novels, uh, now they terrify me more than they used to. The torturer and instructor of the victim, Winston Smith, is a member of the inner party named O'Brien. And part three of 1984 ends with a long, philosophic seminar 
conducted as they would be in such a regime under torture. And O'Brien explains to Winston, he says, why am I hurting you, Winston? Why do we ride tyranny on the whole population? And uh, Winston replies, we are weak and we have to be made into something stronger. And uh, there's a dial that O'Brien turns to increase the torture. And he turns up the dial. That was stupid, Winston. That's not what it's for. In the universe, there's only power. And so if you are obeying us while you're in pain, we will know that it is we who is causing you to act. That perfects our tyranny. And then a few lines down, if you think of the future, Winston, imagine a boot stamping on a human face for all time. That's the point. It, it, just think, if we have a, na a nature, then raising a child is like growing a plant. Help it become what it's to become. And it carries the seed of its own motion and its own growth and ultimately its own improvement in itself. And you're just assisting that, right? But if, on the other hand, you conceive this human being is shaped by all these accidental factors, well, that's just an invitation for you. Because, by the way, that's just an exercise in power, you see, in which the being, uh, the individual being, does not participate. It is just shaped. It is just matter, right? Mm. And once you see that, then it's an obvious deduction. Well, we should get on top here, right? We should be the ones doing the shaping rather than being shaped. And since there's no principle in the universe apart from power to govern how you use your power, the power will be unbridled and ultimately selfish. That, that set of ideas, and you know, if you just read critical race theory, many of those ideas are there. Sometimes put in kindly terms, but always with this fatal problem, and that is, how can you call a thing in the past unjust unless there is some principle of justice outside us, each of us, all of us, every one of us, that governs what justice is. And what they say is, no. So that's where we are, right? That's the, this, this kind of thinking has been around for at least 250 years. You know, full-blown 180, 200 years, 19th century thing mostly. And it was thought back then that this was a great discovery of a liberation. We can break free. We can see everything. We can control everything. Our natures themselves will be transformed. And, you know, human life is full of problems. Human life is mortal, mortal life. And, you know, the interesting thing and the tragic thing in part about human beings is we have immortal souls. And so we know that we're going to die. From an early age, we know. And so that condition is unsatisfactory. It's one reason why people think up the idea of heaven, or rather why it is revealed to us and we respond to them, to it. And so what if you could just fix that? What if you could fix it here on earth? What if you could make everything right? And that's the charm of the idea. The brutality follows after that and necessarily follows. Well, I take an object lesson from sports. Uh, football season just started. We watched some games in college uh, football this weekend, and 
my brother and I were talking about the referees being completely involved in every aspect now. And I said, as we try to perfect anything, even a football game, we ruin it. So mm-hmm. let's not try to perfect this imperfect world. Let's look forward to what God has in mind for us later. Well, we have alluded to, of course, one of the core principles of the nation's founding. They declared it universally applicable, and it is. They declared it self-evident, and it is to me. I, I trust everybody. It is a truth that all are created equal. Yet, as we've discussed, our country was founded at a time when no nation in the history of the world had ever abolished the wicked practice of slavery. And that first nation to do so, Britain, it didn't happen until several decades after the founding of the United States of America. Our nation was actually the fourth at all time, I think, to abolish slavery. But one could make the case, I think, as President John Quincy Adams did on Independence Day in 1837, that America is the most anti-slavery nation in the history of the world. But it is true, Dr. Arne, that we didn't abolish it immediately at our founding. It took decades. And that fact continues to mar our self-portrait. So people who tend to oppose our founding principles that we've been discussing, they want to deconstruct that. Critical race theory is deconstructing, replacing it. Uh, you got to get rid of the thing that is before you replace it. They gain this undeserved traction to say, yeah, America's all bad. And of course, the 1619 Project is all about that. You know, America was founded as a slaveocracy, I think they say. It's an example of that kind of traction. So I think my perception of the 1776 report and what perhaps President Trump had in mind is sort of a reality counter to that anti-reality. Am I on track with that? Uh, And if so, Dr. Arne, how do we effectively counter that sort of anti-American indoctrination that something like 1619 Project brings? Well, you know, whatever you think about him and their problems with Donald Trump as there are with every human being, he loves the country. And uh, that's what moves him. You know, he he's he's at his best when he's talking about that. So this 1619 project, it, it that's the New York Times. And they, uh, you know, they just say a bunch of things that's patently not true. Uh, they say that the purpose of the American Republic since 1619, since it, before it was founded, has been the perpetuation of slavery. And Gordon Wood... He's a political liberal, as far as I know. He's a he's the sort of dean of American historians. He's a student of Bernard Balin, who was that before him. He says that there's no statement in the colonies until the Confederacy, all that long time, right? And that's 1609 until 1860, right? No one says that's the purpose. And even in the Confederacy, they didn't say it's the purpose. It's it's high good and important, but it's it's not the purpose of the Confederacy by their own account, right? And so that that means that that's just not true. And you know they got caught in a fib because they claim when they announced the 1619 project, they won a Pulitzer Prize for this article that this is the true American history. Well, then later, because, you know, nobody agrees, nobody serious agrees with that. They changed their website uh, and they didn't announce that they were doing it. The article is there under the same title as it was before on their website. But what it says now is that this is a 
another and helpful perspective, some language like that. And that's a fib, right? You shouldn't do that. They're getting a lot of traction. And let me let me say a word about today, right? First of all, it is a shameful thing that large populations in America live in squalor and without much hope. And a lot of those people who live that way are black. And you have to ask yourself, why is that? Well, I'll just cite one thing. Uh, first of all, we invented the welfare state in the 60s, and the black family was the first one crushed. And that means black children are growing up without families to in higher percentages than any others, although that's spreading, by the way, to other races. The second thing is, look at the condition of education in the inner cities. If you, if you doubt this, watch a movie it's, uh, called The Lottery. It's about the Harlem Success Academies that operate today in Harlem. There are four four campuses there. One of the campuses shares the campus with another public school in New York City. Well, the Harlem Success Academies are consistently rated among the best schools in New York, rich suburbs included. And then the nearby schools all over Harlem and New York City, they're terrible, Very, including the one that shares a building with the Harlem Success Academies. Those are charter schools, right? And yet politicians of New York City, overwhelmingly left-wing politicians, by the way, they are hostile to that thing and they attack it all the time. And it's difficult for the people who run that school to overcome the resistance. And the lottery is very touching because uh, it's about how you get in. You get in by lottery and it goes into the homes of the people. And, you know, their families are, uh, you know, one of my one of my beliefs is we, we have started a couple of inner city charter schools and hope to found many more. And somebody said to me once, well, the parents are not there. And I said, well, somebody's there because if there's a five year old alive, there's somebody who loves that kid because they die except for that. So we you know, they, this the lottery shows that there's always aunt or uncle or grandpa or grandma, grandma, along with one or two parents. Well, they get the kid all dressed up, new tennis shoes and new jeans, and they go and they stand in a queue that goes all the way around the campus, show pictures of it. And then they get in and they start announcing the lottery. The way it works in our charter schools, which has, there are 20 of them, and they have a wait list half as big as the student bodies of those schools, is that uh, you put up on the screen an Excel spreadsheet that's got, it randomizes, and then it draws a red line and everybody above the line gets in and everybody below the line doesn't. And in the Harlem Success Academies, the line is about three quarters of the way up the page. Mm. And that means people find their name and they start to bawl and cry and others rejoice, right? Now, why is that limited? Why don't we just go crazy and do all of those things, right? In some states, that's happening now. Thank God for it. Florida and Tennessee are leaders in this. But there are other good states, too. And, and most states now have some kind of charter law. And, you know, just think, more than half the employees of the public schools are not school teachers. That's a crazy percentage, right? In a charter school, it's like one to six or one to eight in favor of the teachers. 
of schools under this now uh, decried founding, they are thought the, the way to achieve equality of opportunity. Kids can at least go to a good school. And good schools are not rocket science. You know, we do classical schools. The Harlem Success Academy doesn't. But they're excellent. You know why? Because they teach and people pay attention and the environment is safe. And you have to remember the first line of Aristotle's metaphysics. The human being stretches himself out to know. You know, I, I'm a teacher. I, mean, I run a college, but I teach in the college, too. It's the best part of my job. And what do you discover when you walk in a classroom? Everybody loves to know, right? And the learning, remember, it's, it's radically different from making anything, making a machine, making anything, making a computer. It's more like helping something to grow. Yes. And, and the thing is in it, right? And, it, you know, one of the worst mistakes I discover that a teacher can make at the college level is to just drone on all the time about the stuff you know. Because everybody needs to contribute. I'm, I'm an aggressive Socratic teacher, I guess is one way you might uh, describe my method. And many, many of us here have this. And they're better teachers than I am here because you got to be really good to be the best here. I always ask them first. And I've learned to do that. Because whatever they say back to you is extremely revealing. And often teaches you something. But anyway, shows you what they know. And now... The question that comes up, that's on everybody's mind. And so when you, when the answer emerges, most often, I guess, from you, but often from the students, when the answer emerges, everybody's ready for it, you see? And, and that means a good school, everybody who walks in there, every student, every teacher, in principle, carries the success of the school with himself. Yes. And if once you realize that, then you see you don't need all these bureaucrats writing details about how you study and when. We do curricula. We, we've, we've now published, we've been working on it for 10 years, well, 40 years, but 10 years actively on this. We've done a 1776 curriculum for K through 12 schools. It was underway long before Donald Trump was elected president. It's detailed to every grade level, and it's, it suggests what to cover and what materials to use. It's very detailed. And on the other hand, it's very flexible because we're not going to be in the classroom. We're just helping the people who are. And it doesn't have commands in it. And that's the right way to go about it if you're going to deal with a free people. My very next question that I had in mind, I had actually written out a series of uh, prompts and asking you about the 1776 curriculum was the next thing on my list. So great minds think alike. If that's true, that I'm very honored. Just want to let listeners know that method that Dr. Arn was talking about works at his level in a college as well as in uh, primary and secondary schools. I had the honor of sitting in on a class at Hillsdale Academy, and it was a ninth grade class, and they were having a discussion about portion of world history, and I felt like a complete dummy because these ninth graders were so engaged and they knew so much about the topic. They were interested, they were involved, 
uh, it was really extraordinary. I was uplifted by it, but I did feel like I'm the dumbest guy in this room. <laughs> so that, that method works and it's encouraging. Well, we're running low on time and I know you're about to address the, the freshman. I did want to point out something great that's also in another appendix of the 1776 report. You had its power, powerful observation that says, quote, a healthy attachment to this country, which is true patriotism, is neither blind nor fanatical, but the right sort of love of country holds the, it, the country up to an objective standard of right and wrong, end quote. And that is so important. I hope listeners will glom on to that truth, that there is objective truth. There is objective capital T truth, right and wrong, to which we are all accountable and true equality is in that. Uh, we are all subordinate to that true authority uh, that does not come from Washington, D.C. or any other seat of power on earth, I promise you. Dr. Larry Arn, it's been my great honor and pleasure to have you on Core Principles. I want to thank you so much for joining me. This has just really been a, a tremendous opportunity for me, and I thank you. Well, I'm opportunity for me, too. What a man you are. Thank you for your work. Core Principles Podcast is produced in Paducah, Kentucky by Real Productions. Music is by Late July, L-E-I-G-H-T July. You can find our music on all streaming services or at latejuly.com. Thank you for joining us today for this episode of the Core Principles Podcast. Please visit core.buzzsprout.com for more information. And please share with your friends. We look forward to visiting with you again on our next episode.